You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. There's been a lot of discourse right now on AI. I thought it might be time for us to talk about it in a little more depth. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about some of the news this week. The economic minister of Germany has put forth a proposal to begin to scrutinize Chinese investments in Germany. So welcome to kind of reality, Germany. And the U.S. is apparently going to provide Ukraine with F-16 fighter jets, which some on the Hill are calling a little too little and a little too late in this most recent conflict. And as you know, America's economic girth has given it solid national security footing. So, of course, national security watchers are going to be listening to see what Fed Chair Jay Powell says in his speech this week at the Economic Symposium in Jackson Hole. And Congress appears to be heading toward another possible government shutdown over the budget, despite the fact that Fitch's has downgraded the United States long-term rating to AA plus from AAA and characterizes it as outlook stable. And they've based that diminution in our status, our economic status on Congress's inability to agree on the debt ceiling. So here we go again. This week, China launched military drills around Taiwan after Taiwanese Vice President Lei Chi Ti stopped by San Francisco and New York this week. Those are two nice cities to visit, so I hope you had a good time. And the Wall Street Journal reports that China and the U.S. are both separately testing intelligent drone swarms in a race for military AI dominance. Now, on that topic, this Sunday, August 20th, Bloomberg News ran, you know, on those sleepy rerun Sunday interviews, they did something interesting, and I wonder if it was intentional. They aired an interview from years ago with Sam Altman, the former CEO of OpenAI. And in the first interview, which I think was one of those Emily Chang, you know, very thoughtful interview for her, Altman had his normal energetic speech and somewhat pressured speech in the, an air of confidence. It seemed, you know, really pretty impenetrable. But there also aired a more recent interview right after that. And it was Altman again. But this time he had a slight pallor and he looked considerably more pensive a man than he had in his early declarations about, you know, sort of the glory that AI would cause. Undoubtedly, some of you caught this likely unintended comparison. And if you did drop us a note, I'd be interested to hear your reaction. And on that point about the now and then assessment of AI, five years ago, we had a conversation with Michael Page. He was the policy and ethics advisor to OpenAI. And it was an interesting conversation. On his end, I would say it was very optimistic. On ours, it was very cautionary. Listening to it recently, it sort of struck me as a lot like that literary device known as retrospective inevitability. And it might interest you to hear what his views were then. Among the issues we discussed was training autonomous weapons not to kill, the trade-off in weaponry between speed and capabilities, and how that would make error correction of the algorithm highly unlikely, if not impossible. Also, whether or not we could partner on AI policy and development with countries like North Korea and China. And I believe he opined, but you can correct me once you hear it, that we should all agree not to use AI for autonomous weapons systems. 
We also discussed whether any weapon system can really be trained not to violate the law of armed conflict. Now, in light of what has happened with Sam Altman and some of the statements he has made about AI's threat, posing an existential threat to humanity, we thought it was a good time to revisit sort of the sunny place that we were back then. And it's also helpful to think about the past as we consider the future and what some sort of policy or law might actually look like in this space. So once again, this is our interview with Michael Page, and it occurred in 2018. We are so lucky to be here. We're from National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. That's not enough to say. Excellent. Um, Let's just say that we are particularly pleased to be joining and doing this podcast together with Cyber Law Podcast, and that many of us are huge fans of your podcast, Stuart. And we're especially honored that we're going to have a guest like Michael Page from OpenAI. But I will say, as you know, I have spent a career correcting your legal and policy judgment, Stuart, and I'm looking forward to doing this during this podcast. And I'm particularly pleased that Michael is going to discuss his understanding of where we're going with artificial intelligence. And I might add that the ABA just co-sponsored an AI and machine learning conference with Ohio State this weekend, in which we brought together about 10 or 12 extraordinary experts to discuss the policy and legal frameworks. And I'm looking forward to hearing Michael's take on the issue. So why don't we jump right in and ask Michael to uh, explain who he is and uh, what OpenAI is. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, OpenAI is a nonprofit research organization based in San Francisco that focuses directly on building and or helping other like-minded, goal-aligned organizations build safe and broadly beneficial uh, what we're going to call artificial general intelligence. And I'd like to unpack that later. It's a bit of a hot button uh, word with a lot of baggage associated with it. Um, so it's mostly a technical organization, although it does have some policy strategy component to it. Um, and I'm in that latter component. And if, if I, you, when I met you in the elevator, you said that you are a recovering lawyer. I am a recovering lawyer, which is a, a, almost- a recovering Connecticut Avenue lawyer. <laughs> I, I was at uh, Williams and Connolly, uh, so not quite on Connecticut Avenue, but close. Uh, but yes, I'm a recovering lawyer, which I think has absolutely nothing to do with what I currently do. Although sometimes there are useful, <laughs> useful examples of how people shouldn't behave, and, and that provides a, a fertile uh, you know, area for anecdotes. So how did you get from there to here? Uh, it's, it's a bit of a circuitous story. Uh, I went through Oxford. Uh, I met a bunch of people who were looking at how emerging technologies might impact the long-run future, became interested in AI, um, and I learned there is this... Uh, niche, which was basically uh, an aggregator of experts uh, on AI that people, not enough people were filling. Um, and so that's what I view my job as. I'm a bit of an aggregator of experts, and I try to focus on the big picture to predict where we might make mistakes by not being sufficiently thoughtful about where this technology might go. So, Michael, um, I, I assume you meant Oxford. Uh, is that Oxford, Mississippi, or the other Oxford? Uh, it is the other, It is the I- other Oxford. Okay, and I guess the other question is, um, what exactly, we call this the Geek Wonk Bridge. So can you explain a little bit what you think you're doing at AI and what your role in particularly is on a day-to-day basis? Sure. So I, I'm not a machine learning expert. I eat lunch with machine learning experts, and so that's about the extent of my expertise. Um, I, I, can, I can make it up a bit, um, and I can explain in some general terms how this works. 
Um, mostly what I do on a day-to-day -day basis is I, I try to understand um, everything that is currently happening in AI, um, everything that might be happening in the next 5, 10, 15, or 20 years. I look at what major actors, and the major actors include key research organizations like Google, OpenAI, Facebook, Microsoft, uh, state actors. I look at what they're currently doing, and I think, okay, if they were, if they were thinking about what their actions might uh, do to the world 15, 20 years from now, would they be doing those same things? Um, and sometimes the answer is, I don't know. But sometimes the answer is, actually, wait, here's a failure I think that they're going to make, and I think I have evidence for why they might make that failure. Well, before we get to that, though, we do have some listeners who are less initiated. So why don't we talk about exactly what AI is to begin and begin to sort of unpack what its ingredients are? Sure. So very, again, with the caveat that uh, my expertise is that I, I eat lunch with experts. Um, and you can, you can broadly say, uh, you know, AI is software. Um, and, you know, there are two types of AI software. Um, there's what you might call you know, hard-coded or symbolic AI software, where you're basically just encoding human knowledge uh, in software. You know, this is what the AI that, you know, first beat the best chess players uh, in the 90s was, Deep Blue. A another kind of AI uh, is based on machine learning, um, and this is basically just statistics. It's, it's an algorithm that learns based on the data that you give it. Um, so you might give it a bunch of pictures of cats and dogs, um, and then you give it a goal, which is called a loss function. And it basically tries to predict whether a, a picture that's not in the training distribution, a new picture, is either a cat or a dog based upon the labeled cats and dogs in the training set. Uh, and if it gets it wrong, it tries to correct the parameters uh, to do better the next time. You keep doing that over and over and over again and eventually get an algorithm with parameters that are designed to recognize cats rather than dogs when you give them a new picture. So it's trial and error, evolutionary, essentially. Yes, and there and there, there are different str and there's a, a different uh, kind of cousin of of the latter thing I described um, called reinforcement learning, and uh, there are different ways to train reinforcement learners. Uh, some of which are called evolutionary strategies, and, and I'd be happy to chat more about that because it's it's a pretty interesting topic, uh, and and there are plausible paths toward pretty powerful AI in the future. Yeah, and um, it's basically. <laughs> It's best at finding solutions that its human programmers didn't anticipate. Uh, the evolutionary strategies, mm -hmm. in particular, um, I think there are. I mean, ideally, we want to have AI systems that can solve problems that humans can't solve. Um, and related, but different from that, is the risk that they will do. Uh, they will solve the problem in a way the human wouldn't want them to solve. Uh, and so we can we can we can distinguish uh, a technology that can do what humans can't from a technology that will make a mistake that humans didn't foresee. So I, I, I'm interested in this because there was just a paper that came out that had like 30 surprising and slightly cheaty ways in which AI solved uh, uh, problems. Uh, the one I remember that I understand is they had a uh, sort of infinite tic-tac-toe uh, uh, game where you're trying to get five X's or O's in a row and the the machine won the game by positing a uh, move that was like four trillion squares away from where it started and forced the other uh, AI machine that it was operating against to try to calculate all of the uh, possible moves between the two places that it had uh, put its X's. And it basically 
fell over, uh, the, the machine crashed, and the other uh, AI won by default, so right. it was a forfeit. Uh, but that kind of thing that, that we would all call cheating, uh, but which the machine obviously doesn't know is cheating, is surprisingly common in this field. Yeah, it, I think absolutely. And this, this is a, um, a, a rich topic. And so I'd love to talk more about this. I don't know if we want to dive into this now. Uh, but this is, again, what makes uh, potentially even more powerful systems both very capable and uh, very concerning if we're, if we're not uh, careful to make sure that they don't make catastrophic uh, mistakes. Um, if you take a system like Deep Blue and you, and you give it uh, human-inspired heuristics for how to play chess, you're probably going to be able to generally get a sense of the strategy it's employing. Um, but if you don't do that, if you, if you take a system like AlphaGo, the one that DeepMind uh, created, which is based on uh, machine learning, deep, deep reinforcement learning, um, it, it's not learning based on, at least the, the, the newer version, it's not learning based on how humans play Go. Um, so it might develop entirely foundationally different strategies for Go. Um, and for Go, you know, the, the game is limited, you know, only such, you know, it's not going to just change the game. The game, the game is part of the, the domain in which it's operating. Um, but if you give it a problem in a less limited domain, um, then you might not like the surprising solutions that the system developed. Uh, and the more powerful, full, more autonomous system is, the harder it's going to be to predict the solution that it concludes, based on the data you gave it, is the most efficient way of accomplishing its objective. Or even to figure out what the hell it's doing, right? Uh, there are increasing problems with the people who started these machines running, uh, seeing that it's arrived at a solution, but not quite understanding uh, what the solution is or what's driving it. Yeah, so there's a difference between the... the so humans can set the loss function, the objective, at, at whatever they want. Um, and you can have a, a set loss function like correctly identify a cat or, or get the highest score uh, in, in a video game. Um, or you can have a more complicated one, like have uh, humans approve the thing that you did. And this is actually a technique that people at uh, DeepMind and OpenAI are working on to try to make sure that some of these uh, accidents you described don't happen. So this is you know, human feedback objective. But um, separate from that is, is the question of um, interpretability, actually knowing uh, why the system uh, reached the conclusion that it did. So you might train a system to predict whether somebody should be like released on bail or get parole, for example. And this is where a lot of the bias concerns manifest. Um, and you, you feed it a lot of data about the types of people that end up, you know, doing bad things if they're released on parole. Um, and you know, the computer spits out uh, an answer, you know, release on parole. And it might be hard to 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 interrogate that answer. You know, why did you reach that conclusion? And you can get the same thing with the cat and dog classification system. It could be that the system calls something a cat that's actually a dog, and you're not really sure why that happened. Um, and in general, disentangling uh, how these uh, deep learning systems reach their conclusions is very hard. But there is a line of active research on this. Uh, a friend of mine, Chris Ola, uh, there's a recently a New York Times article about his work, is doing really interesting work on this, where you can actually... Uh, scan around on pictures of cats and dogs, uh, and it will and it will show you uh, what the neural net under underneath it um, is is doing with the information that you focused on. So you can focus on just like the ear, and it can say uh, this is how you know this ear gives us this amount of information as a cat versus a dog. So that does some work towards solving this interpretability problem and making the system a bit less opaque. So I, I so Michael, what, what? Oh, uh, Michael, I guess one of the questions I hate to cut you off there is that. The system is very good where its set rules are, are stated, like the games of Go or uh, Tic-Tac-Toe. So there's clear 
clear rule definition and you're saying that's where AI is showing its uh, promise. I guess the other issue which your answer sort of um, raised was in the example of whether or not you're going to give parole, you can have correlations uh, for activities when it looks at the analysis of the individual and what they've done and how they conducted themselves. But the issue that many of us are looking at in this space is how the AI will exercise discretion. When will AI decide that it's time to break the rule uh, as opposed to follow it in order to have a better outcome? What are your thoughts on that? So I, I think discretion is a concept that's hard to cash out in terms of AI systems. Um, and so that, that maybe is, is uh, you know, we would need to decide what uh, objective we're going to give the system, what we're going to ask it to do. Um, if there's something that we want to call discretion that we want humans to do on top of whatever output the system gives us, then we should make sure that's part of the process. Um, there might be more advanced systems that we can train to basically understand what kinds of things humans would want to do with that discretion. Um, so, you know, when you look at sentencing, for example, and a, and a judge decides, okay, you know, here's the range in which I can sentence somebody. Uh, I'm going to and the judge might have intuitions about, oh, this person really doesn't deserve the harsh sentence because they seem like a good person. They're young, whatever. Uh, you, if you just get enough examples like that, you can cash that out in terms of actual data about the types of things that warrants a judge to want to be lenient. Um, so in theory, AI can do that. Uh, the problem is we don't actually know why it's doing that. We might not trust that it's doing the thing that humans do. Um, so one way we can solve that is we can have a system that basically advises us on the you know discretion of leniency and sentencing. Um, and then we can have humans say, oh, that was a, a, a good use of discretion or a bad use of discretion, and then train a system to basically be able to predict what a good judge would do under those circumstances. Well, it sounds like a lot of this, though, uh what the results are from any AI process really depends on the values that are set by human beings, some of which are abstract. And that also depends on a sort of collective understanding of that value system. And right now there is some talk and there's been a proposed bill to set up a government-wide AI policy without too much further definition. Uh, bill didn't seem to address appropriations or anything of the kind. It really was looked a bit like a, a legislative amoeba. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I don't have strong thoughts on that. I mean, th there are a lot of um, claims for, for national policies on AI, and, and I think it's, for the most part, it's, it's not that. I think the things that people are suggesting doing are pretty pretty reasonable. I don't really care if we call it a national policy on AI. Um, I, there are a bunch of problems that need to start being addressed. Uh, I think addressing them with a holistic view is good. Um, but whether we have some, whether we have a document that's called the national policy on AI doesn't seem that important to me. And can we cycle, you know, for sake of the national security law aspect of this, what do you think are the bigger sort of national security concerns, in your opinion, uh, about AI, and how do they, how do your, how do your views consider the fact that there there are international malicious actors yeah. who would exploit the development of AI in a, in a harmful way, at least to the United States. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. So this is, this is why I want to back up a minute and say, so my, my job is, is basically to try to increase the probability that uh, the transition to a world with very powerful AI goes well for everyone. That's, that's my job description. Um, <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a bit vague um, and a bit ambitious. Um, but that's, you know, that includes the whole world. It doesn't just include Americans. Um, 
And uh, my guess right now uh, is that uh, in the transition to a world with more and more powerful AI, we're going to have an endless series of increasingly difficult um, global coordination problems. Um, and I can give examples of types of things I expect might happen. Um, and in a, in a uh, and, and to add one more kind of abstract element to this puzzle, um, I view this as a very non-zero sum game um, for people who like game theory. Um, that means it could be positive sum. We create a lot of value and everybody can win. Uh, or it can be negative sum, uh, meaning we all shoot each other in the foot uh, and we're all unhappy. Um, and in a non-zero sum game, uh, you can get value via coordinating. I mean, this is what this is what civilization is. This is what we've done to get to where we are today. Um, and the problem with uh, any framing of this question that assumes a constant amount of adversarialism um, is that you're forgetting that the amount of adversarialism might be one of the biggest levers that we have uh, in solving this problem going forward. So I think there are very real threats from other states, from from rogue actors. Um, I'm not naive. I think that's worth taking those seriously. At the same time, I think one of the most important things we can do is think about the positive sum possibilities here and look for ways to be able to coordinate with potential actors, even if we don't like them that much right now, because we will need to if we all want to win uh, going through this process. So could you give us some examples? Yeah. So uh, we've talked a lot about uh, safe, some of the safety failures. Uh, for example, um, you, you have a, a, big, a big system. Um, but a big, I mean, lots of computing power. Um, and the bigger the system, the uh, more general and autonomous it can be. Um, and we can unpack those terms a little bit. So if, if a system can uh, just identify cats and dogs, uh, it's kind of very na narrow function. That's, you know, it's a system trained on supervised learning, uh, la labeled structured data sets. Um, and deep reinforcement learning, which is mostly what um, OpenAI, my organization, works on, um, what you're often doing is training algorithms that can play video games. Um, and you can train an algorithm to play uh, a particular video game, or you can have an algorithm that can play any video game. Um, and one that can do the latter is, is more general than one that can do the former. Um, and an algorithm that can recognize cats and dogs and uh, translate speech is more general than one that can only do one of those things. Uh, and generality is important because many problems require understanding across multiple domains to be able to solve them. Um, and uh, humans are exceptionally good at this. We, you know, at least according to us, you know, we're not really sure what it would look like to be even more general. But, you know, we, we can recognize cats, we can understand speech, we can play video games. Um, so one domain is generality. Another domain is autonomy. Um, autonomy is basically the, the number of steps that you can uh, take to accomplish an objective. Uh, so if your objective is, you know, walk to the bathroom, you need to figure out how to walk out of this room, how to, you know, walk down the hall, how to open the door. Maybe you can do it in like 15 steps. In computer language, you, you just call these time steps. They're actually just different units. They're discrete. Um, and a, a system that can uh, accomplish a goal using many time steps uh, can accomplish much harder goals, uh, as you can imagine. If the, if the goal is, uh, you know, end climate change, um, well, that's going to take a lot of steps and probably take a lot of generality. Um, and, you know, the, these are the types of systems that eventually we should be able to build. When, when is, is very uncertain. There are different paths to them. Um, but a system with that amount of generality and autonomy is going to have massive risks along the lines we discussed. Um, you it, could, it could decide that a lot fewer human beings would end climate change. Yeah. And so one thing I always push back on is um, people anthropomorphizing these systems. I mean, I think th th these are algorithms that are, that are you know, accomplishing a task that, that we give them. Um, 
but they might be accomplishing, and there's, so there's nothing nefarious going on. They're not changing their goals. Um, but still, nonetheless, uh, they're not going to do these things in human-like ways. Um, and so you clearly say, as a parameter, uh, don't kill all the humans en route to your goal. But there are uh, you know, a million other things, and that's an understatement, um, that we wouldn't want the system to do. And it's probably going to be hard for us to anticipate all of those things in advance. Um, and so formalizing all the things that we wouldn't want the system to do in pursuit of solving climate change is going to be very, very hard. Um, and so the, the, the nightmare scenario, and this is, this is probably just one of many, but it's like a nice concrete one that we can focus on, um, is that eventually there are going to be systems uh, that can do useful things, um, but to, to make them, uh, we're going to need to spend a lot of time making them safe. And so there's going to be this trade-off between the speed at which you can develop the system or the capabilities that you can use the system for and the safety of that system. And in an This is just like quantum computing. You, you spend all your time doing error correction. I mean, we want – so, yeah, before we, we deploy a system to solve climate change, I'd want us to spend a whole lot of time doing error correction. Uh, and I think we can all agree. Um, so the, the nightmare scenario is uh, party A – uh, is developing a system that you know would, would harm Party B, uh, and we can, we can give these state names. But we don't need to, uh, and and Party B is doing the opposite, um, and so they're in basically an arms race. Uh, and if you're in an arms race, uh, the last thing you want to do is have a trade-off between speed on the one hand and safety on the other, because then you get this race to the bottom dynamic, um, and this can so be Michael, catastrophic. Yeah, sorry. No, nope, that's it. Uh, one of the issues that we are confronting in our national security space is referred to as the intelligization of warfare, that we're really trying to use as much smart data to help us guide us in the projection of lethality. And as you know, there's a lot of debate going on concerning autonomous weapon systems and whether or not there should be a, a person in the loop, a person over the loop, or no person in the loop. And I'm curious as to where you see this debate breaking as the intelligence and the data gets more and more sophisticated so that we can have armed drones that will be able to identify pictures of lawful targets and whether or not uh, there will have to be a human in the loop in order for the decision to be made to use the lethality. Uh, I'm not going to have a particularly enlightening answer to that. Uh, this is this is not an area in which I focus. Um, I think there's some some difficult trade-offs here. Um, I my my guess is the the human in the loop, human not in the loop framing is is a, is a confused one. Um, uh, as I, as I mentioned, there are ways to train systems that functionally have humans in the loop because they have humans in the, in the training loop, um, and this is what the human feedback uh, training process is all about. Um, and, uh, and so, so I think separate from humans in the loop, you can have a question of, okay, how, how much autonomy should you give a system? Should you, should you give it the ability to, uh, you know, come up with military strategy uh, or just execute a very narrow function? Um, this is going to be a, a question of like very, very difficult line drawing. Um, and I think this is going to require, and this is another race to the bottom dynamic. Um, we're, we're all going to be better off um, if, if we're not using this technology in every possible military way. Um, I think we can all agree. We'd all be better off if, uh, you know, we didn't use chemical weapons, so we agreed not to use chemical weapons. Uh, that's an easy one. It's a nice bright line. There are not going to be clear bright lines here. And so there's just a very, very difficult process of figuring out what is going to be the, like, okay, from an international standpoint, uh, military usage of this technology. I don't think it's going to boil down to something as simple as human in the loop. 
Um, but I think it's a conversation people should start having, and they should have it from the perspective of uh, the less we can be adversarial with this technology, the better we're going to be for some of the reasons that I mentioned. So uh, here's my worry, is that everybody who's developing these tools in the West is thinking, what's good for the world? And everybody who's developing them in China or North Korea is thinking about what's good for China and what's good for North Korea. Um, and in that dynamic, we don't end up all, all better off, but the Chinese and the North Koreans end up a whole lot better off. Yeah. So I don't think that's an accurate description of the current um, narrative. Um, uh, so I, you know, I, I read a lot of translations of things about AI from China, and I read everything about AI coming out of the U.S. And, and I'm seeing a lot of U.S.-China arms race um, narrative here, and that uh, frightens me. Um, and I'm I'm seeing cooperative overtures uh, coming out of China, not not uh, entirely. I mean, obviously, there's uh, you know a lot of concern about you know which which state's going to come out on top and whatnot, and it's unclear whether it's economic or military. Uh, and people often deliberately conflate those two contexts. Um, but Tencent recently uh, put out an, like a book on on AI, uh, and there's a chapter on safety. Uh, and you know we you know I've seen the translation, and there are discussions of. Uh, safety and international coordination and collaboration. I think there are openings here. Um, and so I think whenever someone starts shouting, uh, you know, U.S.-China arms race, um, I would like there to be some pushback, say, hey, this is not inevitable um, and we shouldn't be leading the charge on, on the arms race narrative. Can I, can I uh, pivot slightly to uh, my favorite story of the week uh, in which uh, uh, AI reading contracts for legal issues uh, um, got a score for finding the right issues of in the 90s uh and 94%. then 94 and then 20 some lawyers uh read the same contract and got scores that ranged from 93% down to 67% uh but the AI did it in 27 seconds and the lawyers did it in about uh 1.25 hours on average, uh, uh, which, you know, build out at uh, uh, several hundred dollars. Um, a, and it's clear there's going to be an impact here. And, and uh, you know, uh, reading contracts is something that lawyers think lawyers should do. Um, we're putting lawyers out of work with that. Uh, but now that we know that um, AI can read legal material, what if we just programmed into all of these uh, uh, programs something that said, well, you can achieve all these goals, but you cannot violate any law. So read U.S. code. If you've got any questions, you can hire a lawyer and find out the answer and yep. we'll, go to, we'll go to court. Uh, but it, it, it means that if the machine starts to run into gray areas that it's worried about uh, or the sorry, uh, areas where it, there seems to be a rule that might prevent it from taking steps it's taking it's proposing to take it has to go back and explain itself to a human judge yep i mean th this is the line of research that people are currently working on um and, and if we had uh rules that uh clearly apply to every conceivable situation that humans might find themselves in we wouldn't have a need for lawyers in the first place we wouldn't have a need for judges or common law this is what common law is common law is about we have uh, laws that apply to novel scenarios and someone needs to use some sort of principled common sense interpretation of them um, and so we're always going to have those gray areas i think those gray areas are going to be much bigger for for systems that uh, don't think the way humans think um, but this is what the human feedback um, safety uh, you know, research agenda is all about doing, figuring out how to uh, have systems that kind of know what the rules are, whether they're legal rules or other rules, um, and know when to ask for guidance when they're not sure. 
Okay, I so would, would the argument be that we could basically have an AI autonomous weapon system be programmed with the laws of armed conflict, as Stuart is saying, and then the entity would be able, before it would fire, it would apply the laws of armed conflict and make a decision based on those parameters. And we would then be reducing the number of uh, JAG officers required in going being forward deployed when we project force. Do you see that as a plausible world, uh, Michael? Well, like I guess I have th- three thoughts to that. Um, um, one is uh, the laws of war are far more vague than the laws that govern the way people do, you know, commerce in the U.S. Uh, I mean, the, the, the notion of formalizing proportionality or like military necessity is, is pretty laughable from, from an AI perspective. Um, and so I, I don't think you can get that far doing that. Um, so it's a much, much harder task. Um, a second point is uh, concern about uh, a, something called adversarial examples. Um, this may be a rabbit hole actually not worth going into. So maybe I'll, I'll put a pin in that. But there are some interesting military analogs. Um, and then the third is the point that uh, even if you could do this technically, we're, we're back to this problem of ratcheting up the amount of adversarialness in the world, which I think is going to ultimately be short-sighted from everyone's perspective. Uh, and so I would say uh, use AI less in a military context wherever possible. Let's try to lead the charge on that. Uh, a really quick question here at the end, which is uh, this is a disruptive technology, and some predictions have indicated that this could cause up to 70 to 90% unemployment in the United States alone. Uh, we are a country that does not have a national education program that focuses on STEM. Uh, what do you think about these things, and what are your thoughts generally on how this in and of itself could destabilize our national security? Yeah. Um, so the, you know, I guess there are two related points there. One is about technological unemployment. The other is about STEM education. Um, I, I think you cannot intelligently make policy involving AI unless you understand AI. And this is a huge problem right now. Uh, the people in, in government, people who are thinking, people who have policy backgrounds don't have AI backgrounds. We need more people with both of those things. And I think if you don't have an AI background, make friends who do, try to obtain one, or don't make AI policy. Uh, uh, point two, um, I think going forward, uh, there are going to be a lot of opportunities for people to understand this technology to do useful work in the economy, and we need to find ways to give other people opportunities to obtain those skills. Um, and so I think, yes, I am strongly for better STEM education. I think you know we should go out into the boondocks. I'm from North Dakota. I want everyone in North Dakota to know how to code. I think this is how kids are going to be okay tomorrow. Uh, I also think we're going to we're going to make more wealth. So there's, it's not like we're going to you know there are other uh, ways to ensure that you know the, the outcome uh, is fairly equitable and people are okay, um, other than uh, you know certain jobs coming and going. So Michael, I we as we're finishing up, we traditionally ask our guests if they've got any public events or reports or other uh, uh, things that they'd like the listeners to be aware of. Uh, you got anything you want to plug? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, you know, there's no right. obligation. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I'll uh, uh, I'll let Elisa uh, provide her usual uh, outgoing uh, remarks. Well, I just want to say to all of you out there, if you're thinking about life in a skiff or working in a skiff and handling national security law, and you don't mind constant deprivation of vitamin D, then you should join us next time on National Security Law Today. Thanks for listening to this interview again with Michael Page of OpenAI. Remember to subscribe to NSLT on your listening app of choice.
And if you like us, please rate us. Contact us if you have feedback. You can reach us on Twitter, at least for now, although it is now called X. And you can also reach out to us on threads. And our email address is nationalsecurityandamericanbar.org. Be sure to share this cast with a friend. These are issues worth discussing over coffee, worth thinking about, as if you were in the Lyceum and it was way back when, and you had to come up with big, big ideas. There's no harm in that, and you should be doing it. Thanks again for listening. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Bergham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salido is our program manager. And my other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We'll see you next time. And before you go, mark your calendars for the 33rd Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law, CLE Conference, this November 16th and 17th, held at the Renaissance Washington, D.C. Downtown Hotel. Don't miss out on engaging presentations, thought-provoking panels, and unparalleled networking opportunities. Registration link and event details can be found in the episode description. We look forward to seeing you there. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.